Now, in the book of Matthew, Matthew is, is we, we are turning, we're kind of crossing the continental divide in the Bible. We have, we have come through the Old Testament on this Route 66, and now we've come, we've come up to, to a climactic point where, where that which, which uh, was promised all the way back in Genesis, a coming deliverer, a coming savior, what was seen in all of the Old Testament law and every sacrifice and every lamb that was offered points to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the, the kingdom develops. There is, the, there is a King Saul who is, a, who is a, a faulted king. And then there's God's chosen king, David. David's reign is not perfect, but David's kingdom speaks to, anticipates a coming better kingdom. There will be a better king than David who will come. He will be God's king. And he will have a better kingdom even than David's. But as that kingdom of Israel begins to unravel and sin continues to be the main issue that separates people from God, the prophets come and they, and they confront the people. The prophets are, are holding the people accountable back to the, the law that was given, but also the prophets are anticipating the Savior who would come. They're anticipating a better king. They're anticipating the, the, the promise of a future deliverer who would come, the son of David, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And the gospels open and uh, Jesus steps onto the stage. The, the fulfillment of the Old Testament in so many aspects is now here. And how will we describe him? The purpose of the Bible as a whole is to make God known to us. It's God's revelation. It doesn't mean that just that this comes from God. It means that the Bible is God's revealing of himself to us. We can know him. As God has revealed himself to us, the greatest revelation of God himself is his son, Jesus. In fact, the book of Hebrews said, God who in various ways and in previous times made himself known unto our fathers by the prophets has in these last days revealed himself in his Son. The Son is the fullest revelation of who God is. Well, how would you describe God? How would you describe God in, in, one, in one go? The, it's one of the reasons there are four Gospels. The four Gospels give a, 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 different, a different presentation, a different uh, view, a different perspective on who is Jesus, who is this manifestation, this one, this person of the Godhead, God himself in the flesh who reveals to us who God is. And so the four Gospels each have a particular emphasis. And I gave you that emphasis kind of in brief on your, on your, on your outline. Uh, on the, uh, let's see, that would be the right-hand side. On the right-hand side in kind of lighter gray. And I actually would like to change one of those this morning. Uh, those are all good. I just think I can go one better. So I have on your, now, on, on your notes there, I have that Matthew shows Jesus as the son of David. It, prevents, it presents Jesus as the king, that promised king, the Christ, the Messiah who would come, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Mark shows Jesus as the suffering servant of the Lord. But another better title for that also, not unlike Luke, would be Jesus as not the son of David, the king, but as the son of man. Jesus uses that, that title for himself over and over and over again in the book of Mark. And it harkens back to previous faithful servants of God like Daniel and Ezekiel who were called the Son of Man. 
And then, then in the book of Luke, then, if we've already used up the title Son of Man, Luke would identify Jesus as the Son of Adam, his true humanity. Luke emphasized that Jesus is a man's man. He's a real man. He is the best of humanity. He is what, what a, a, a man walking in relationship with God by the power of the Holy Spirit looks like. Jesus, the son of Adam. And then finally, the last gospel, the gospel of John, shows, shows Jesus as the son of God. He has chosen, each, each of the authors chose particular incidents, particular stories, particular things that Jesus said and did in order to emphasize a particular aspect. So don't necessarily try to compare this one to that one. Say, wait a minute, it says there were ten people here, but it says there were only two people in this one. They're, they're, they're choosing different details of the actual events that happened, even sometimes changing the order, because the, whole, the main purpose is not to sh- give a catalog or a or chronology of events that happened in the life of Jesus, but they're to assemble these together to tell a story that explains who is Jesus. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the servant. Jesus is humanity. Jesus is God. So, as we approach the book of Matthew, we could ask ourselves, well, why Matthew first? Well, we're doing Matthew first because Matthew is first. Good. You're, you're with me. That, that, that was my decision-making process. But Matthew is first for a reason. Have you noticed as you've read different in the Gospels that, that the book of Matthew has more specific Old Testament quotations than any of the others? Matthew is the most Old Testament. Tish. I just made up that word. Of all, of, of, of all the Gospels, and so Matthew was, was often considered to be the first of the Gospels. It's the Gospel that's clearly connected to one of the original twelve disciples, but also because there are so much direct quotations out of the Old Testament that when the, when the Scripture was assembled together in our Bibles, they put Matthew first because it has that close connection to the Old Testament. Now, there's another reason um, that, that, uh, that Old Testament connection with Matthew. Matthew seems very Jewish. Matthew seems to be writing especially to Jewish Christians in the first several decades of the church, when most Christians, and certainly within the land of Israel, most of the followers of Jesus came from a Jewish background. But, pretend with me, for a few minutes that you're Jewish. Pretend with me that as a Jewish person who grew up in the synagogue and who heard the promises of the coming Messiah, you heard about his kingdom. You heard about how the, the Roman oppressors would finally one day be thrown aside and, and our king, a better than David, would come and he would deliver us and he would reign in righteousness. And it would be wonderful. You heard about that. And you're longing for that king. And then you are told the son of David is here. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is the king and that means he's going to bring his kingdom. And yet, it's been a few years. You understood he was rejected. He was crucified. He was raised from the dead. And he's going to be coming back to establish his kingdom. You understand that. That's been taught in the churches since his resurrection. And you celebrate that hope, and yet, 20 years go by. 30 years, maybe, go by. And you're wondering, where's the kingdom? 
We had thought that he was the one. We had thought that he was the one that would deliver Israel. We were thought that he was the one that would establish his kingdom. And finally, God's will on, on earth as it is in heaven, finally righteousness would rule. We hunger for that. And yet it hasn't happened. That's, that's, the, that's the mindset that the book of Matthew is written into. And there's a connection place for us. While we wait, while we wait in faith, in hope of that which we do not yet see, what we know but don't yet see. Well, Proverbs warns us that hope deferred makes the heart grow weak. What does that mean? That when I don't see, when that which I'm hoping for does not come, after a while I can get tired. I can get worn out. I could give up. I certainly can get distracted. I can, turn, I, can, I can get drawn away by things that seem more urgent and pressing and near. And Matthew is writing into that environment while the church waits for Christ to return with his kingdom. While we wait, we need to remember who is Jesus. We need to remember that he really is the king. That's the thrust of Matthew. Now, how does that unfold? Well, Matthew, in the first ten chapters, God's king and his kingdom are seen. They're declared. They're, they're, they're shown forth. They're told broadly and boldly. It starts out in the, in the very first chapter. You have this long genealogy, this lineage of the king, that Jesus is shown specifically not just it, it, this isn't just family history. His lineage is traced specifically. This is Joseph's genealogy, actually, not Mary's. Because Joseph, as his apparent father or his adopted father, his foster father, however you want to understand that, that he's the son of God, virgin born, and yet Joseph is the man of the house. It's Joseph's family, and so Joseph would be the legal claim to the throne of David. So traced back through Joseph's family, through Solomon, to David, all the way back to Abraham, because Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the king, David, of the Jews, Abraham. So even the genealogies in chapter 1 is important. We'll talk more about genealogies in coming weeks. Some Gospels have them and some do not, and that's, that plays right into the thrust of the Gospels. But I won't take more time on that this morning. Keep you coming back. So there's that lineage, and then he's, he's declared to be the Son of God. He's declared to be the son of David, the son of Abraham, the king of Israel. And then there are these prophecies, one after another. How do we know? Go back to the book. There's the prophecy of the virgin birth and an Old Testament quote out of Isaiah in chapter 1. There's the prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem, and he was. Matthew chapter 2 quotes the book of Micah. There's a prophecy that, he would, that God would bring his son up out of Egypt. And Jesus, as, as an infant, is taken to Egypt and then brought back into the land again. Uh, there's the prophecy prophecy of Rachel's children weeping, the slaughter by King Herod of all those children in Bethlehem after Jesus and Joseph and Mary had escaped. There's the prophecy of the messenger who would come before the Messiah in chapter 3. There's the, there's the prophecy that first the Messiah would, would show himself in Galilee. That Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee in the far north would be the first to see this light in the midst of darkness, Isaiah chapter 9. There's the uh, prophecy that he would heal our diseases that's shown in Matthew chapter 8. He's the Lord's servant. He is going to be the suffering servant who, who also would be the hope of the nations, a, a, a light unto the Gentiles in Matthew chapter 12. 
And then even the fact that he taught in parables is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy described in Matthew chapter 13. So all of these, these prophecies are specifically mentioned by Matthew to remind us, to prove to us who is Jesus. Is Jesus really the Christ or should we look for another? And he says, go back to the book. What feeds our faith? What Matthew does here is an important application for all of us. If we want to feed our faith, if we want to exercise our faith, if we want to strengthen our faith, if we want to not be distracted in the midst of the shiny things all around us, we need to go back to the Word. We need to spend time. Don't, don't imagine who, what God must be like. Don't imagine in your own mind what it is that you think Jesus is like because what we will end up doing, we will tend to create a Jesus. We will tend to create a God who looks something more like us. It's said that in the beginning God created man in his own image and ever since man has been returning the favor. We create God something like our own image. God must be something like my perspective. It's really great, I mean, if God always ends up agreeing with you that way. But that's not the way that we will grow in our faith. That's not the way we will be transformed by the true and living God. We need to know him as he is and you'll know him from his word. That's the point that Matthew is making. We know who he is from his word. That's where we'll feed our faith. Well, the king and the kingdom, no, uh, he's, his, his claim is established by the genealogy in chapter 1. His, it's confirmed by the prophecies all through the first half of the book. And also the character of his kingdom is shown in the Sermon on the Mount, that first long extended teaching very early in the book of Matthew. And in that, he shows his authority that Jesus goes beyond the law. He makes the law not a matter of conforming, but he makes the law a matter of being transformed. Keeping the law in its details is not enough. I haven't killed anybody. The law says thou shalt not kill. I haven't killed anybody. The law says thou shalt not commit adultery. I haven't committed adultery. The law says, and Jesus says, it is written, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you hate someone in your heart, that's murder. The law says thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus says, if you lust after a woman in your mind, in your mind you have already committed adultery with her. So Jesus takes it not on, as a matter of outward conformity, but he uses the law as a lens upon our heart. And there all of us find ourselves guilty. Even if that deed I have not actually done, I see what that de- deed, what that law declares against, I see that in my own heart. And so Jesus comes as the king of a new covenant who will write his own law upon our hearts, who will take that heightened law which we cannot measure up to. That heightened law shows all of us our need for a savior, for forgiveness, for restoration. And Jesus as the king is the one who who comes with a new covenant. So he, he shows the character of the kingdom. This, this is not just a conformity kingdom. This is a spiritual transformed kingdom. He, the king must make the people new. It's a kingdom and the, and the people can't believe the authority that he teaches with. And yet his teaching, the things that he says are bracketed. If you look back now as you go through Matthew again, watch this. Just before the Sermon on the Mount, and just after the Sermon on the Mount, there's these cluster of miracles. The blind see. The lame walk. 
The dead are raised. Lepers are cleansed. All of these miracles clustered before the Sermon on the Mount. Then Jesus declares his kingdom and the character of it. And then to back up those words, then after, after that Sermon on the Mount, there's again this cluster in chapter 8. There's this cluster of miracles again following chapter 8, 9, 10. What's going on with that? Well, it's explained in that verse I already told the kids about in chapter 7, verse 20. You will know a tree by its fruit. And in that context, in that context, Jesus is referring to false prophets. They're wondering, is he a prophet we can believe? Is Jesus somebody that I should listen to? Is Jesus, does Jesus have the authority to take the law, which we as a people, a Jewish people, had embraced? Does he have the authority to take that and raise it to that such higher standard? How do I know that this man, as Nicodemus would say in John's Gospel, how can I know that this man is a teacher sent from God? And he says, you will know them by their fruit. It's a 720 moment. All of those miracles are to authenticate who he is, that Jesus is king. All right. That's the essential question. Is Jesus really the king? Turn with me to to Matthew chapter 11. We need to get into the book a little bit. In Matthew chapter 11, I've set up that opening presentation, that presentation of the king, God's kingdom, kingdom are seen. But now in Matthew chapter 11, there's the critical question, is Jesus really the king? And it's raised by two different people. Let's start in, in, in Matthew chapter 11 from verse 1, the first six verses. If you're using a pew Bible, I'm on page 816. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Jesus, his fruit, he sent word by the disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John the Baptist is even wondering. Why, John the Baptist is the messenger. He's this great prophet, this forerunner, one who comes like Elijah to prepare the... Malachi talked about him. And he's this great prophet to announce the king, the forerunner of the king. What a privileged position to be the guy who runs before the king's chariot and says, make way for the king, make way for the king, get out of the way, the king is coming. And yet, what do they do? He's the king's premier ambassador, and yet they throw him in prison. And he's languishing there. And he's saying, where is the king? Why isn't he getting me out of here? And so he knows the king is coming, but he's wondering, did I get it wrong? Did I hear God wrong? Is Jesus really that king? And look how Jesus responds. Notice that when... um, when John seems to be wondering or wavering a little bit, Jesus doesn't hammer him. Look how Jesus gently responds to him. And Jesus answered in verse 4, Go and tell John what you hear and see. What is it that they hear and see? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is the one who does not stumble in his faith because he doesn't see the fullness of the kingdom coming from me yet. He says, John knows the book. John knows the prophecies. John will understand what all of these things mean. These things are happening. These miracles are occurring. These signs are occurring because Jesus is a, can I do this? The Messiah tree. 
Jesus is the kingdom tree. Jesus is the root and the branch. Those are actual terms that are used of David. He is the king from David who will bring in God's kingdom, and so he can't help but have these things occurring in his midst. Jesus is not trying to put on a circus show. He's not doing all these miracles so that people will believe him. In fact, when they come and say, would you just give us one more miracle so that we could believe you? He says, no, no sign is going to be given. To an unbelieving generation, no sign is going to be given except the sign of, of, of Jonah. As Jonah was in the whale three days and three so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth, and he'll be raised up. So the, so the resurrection is the only sign that he's going to give them, his death and his resurrection. He didn't do miracles simply to prove his point. The miracles came because of who he was. Go back to the kids for a minute. Kids, does an apple tree grow apples to prove that it's an apple tree? An apple tree grows apples to prove that it's an apple tree? No! An apple tree grows apples because that's what comes from apple trees. It just happens. An apple tree that's healthy will bear fruit. So if Jesus is the king, if he really is the Messiah, it comes. Those signs of his kingdom just flow out of him because that's who he is. And that's what's happening. He says, John knows the book. John will know. You don't tell John, yes, he is. Go tell John what you see and hear. And John will say, oh, yeah, without a doubt, Jesus is the one. Some others come along, however. In chapter 12, this whole thing comes to a climax. In chapter 12, in verse 22, There's a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. Talk about putting it all together. I mean, all we need now is that he's leprous and he's died. So all of this, all of this rolled together in one man. He's demon-oppressed, who's blind and mute, and was brought to him, and Jesus healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, here's the question, can this be the son of David? Is this Jesus really the king? But when the Pharisees heard that, when the societal leaders of the day heard that, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, Beelzebub's bull's kind of a strange name, but it's another name for Satan, the prince of all the demons. It's only by him, the prince of the demons, that this man cast out the demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to him, Every kingdom divided of itself is laid to waste. No city or house divided of itself can stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. But, verse 28, If by the Spirit of God, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jump down to verse 33. There's going to be a familiar line. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Don't say these are good things coming from Satan. Don't say these are good things coming from a bad tree. If these are good things, the casting out of demon, the bringing healing to a broken humanity, if those are good things and they're coming from a good tree, they're coming because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He says no... Every sin that a person commits can be forgiven him except for this one. This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit here in, in Matthew chapter 12. And some of you are concerned about that. Some of you are wondering, can I be forgiven? Have I maybe committed this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, whatever that is? 
Have I done something against God that is the point that I could never be forgiven so there's no chance of me being accepted into God's presence? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is blaspheming the Spirit by saying that which the Spirit of God is doing is actually, no, they're saying that's Satan doing that. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And all that is coming out of what? They are refusing to believe that Jesus is who he's declared himself to be. So blasphemy of the Spirit is nothing more than this. It's a particular thing in a generation when the Messiah, the Son of David, is presented to his people. It's a particular thing in that generation that isn't repeated. However, the only thing that cannot be forgiven by believing in Christ is not believing in Christ. That's what they're doing. And that's the only thing that continues to be unforgivable today. The only unforgivable sin you can commit is to refuse to believe in Jesus. The one who came for our sin, for our guilt, to take it all away. And anyone here can be forgiven. All of us can be forgiven. The only one who will not be forgiven is the person who will refuse to believe in Jesus, who loved you and gave himself for you. That's the unforgivable sin. You see, it's the rejection of the king. We need to know who he is. Our, our, our faith is strengthened if we know who he is. Is Jesus really the king? Now, doubt is not the same as unbelief. John doubted. John wavered. The Pharisees and others refused to believe. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Do you remember the man who came to Jesus and he said, Lord, I believe? And then what did he say next? Help me in my unbelief. Yeah. Jesus says, you don't have to have perfect faith. In fact, the faith of a grain, a mustard seed, a little in him is enough. Is enough. Be honest with the Lord with your doubts. Say, Lord, I don't get this. Lord, I don't know why you don't show up. That's what John's praying in a sense. If you're the king, why aren't you coming through? In the midst of my situation, it's uncomfortable in this jail. And Jesus' response is, look and see, I am the king. Trust me, keep waiting. It will all happen just as you know, just as God has promised. Keep waiting, keep trusting. Doubts that, that linger in us are not the same as disbelief. Feed your faith in the midst of those doubts. Don't, don't hide them and pretend that they're not there. there. There's a shift now that happens in the book of Matthew. Matthew up till now has been presenting the king. It comes to a climax in chapter 12. And now from chapter 13 forward, chapter 13 to, to 20, there's a change. God's kingdom is coming, but Jesus is now preparing his disciples. Listen in here. This is us as well. He's preparing his disciples for this change in their expectations. The delay of the kingdom. God's will on earth as it is in heaven is going to happen. That's what he told us to pray. And yet it's delayed. It's not going to happen in the way that they expected it to. And so how do we continue in the midst while we wait? There's instruction to that in chapter 13 all the way through 20. I'm just going to survey some of it just to kind of give us an idea. There's the parables that he started with. He says, there's bad soil in the midst of the good soil. That's why some of these people aren't believing. That's why so many are not receiving Jesus as king. There's bad soil and there's good soil. There are weeds in the midst of the wheat. The enemy has come along and has planted those who oppose Jesus, who oppose the gospel in the midst of those who do. And God's going to give them time to grow and they're going to show themselves. 
So God is still in charge of this process, even as he's patiently waiting for it to all come to fulfillment. There's, there's, there's the parable about the mustard seed and the leaven. The mustard seed and leaven are both things that start very, very small. Even if you don't see the fullness of the kingdom yet, it has started. It is coming. It has already begun. And that's what we see today in the church. We see that, the, the, that first growth, that first coming of the kingdom, not on the scale that it will. There will be a literal... Jesus will step down on the Mount of Olives. He will rule over all the world from Jerusalem, just in every sense of a normal earthly kingdom you can imagine. And yet already, he has his rule in the hearts of those who believe him. And the kingdom is spreading the kingdom is growing. Faith in Christ is continuing, not merely in that area among a people who waited for a Messiah, but all the way to the ends of the earth. More than any other religion in the world today are those who follow Jesus Christ. It's growing to a point. And I'm not saying that we're going to slowly bring in the kingdom by our increasing faith, not at all. Our faith will be weak, and you'll wonder, are there any Christians left? And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, then he comes. Maybe at the darkest hour of the night, then he comes. But in the midst, uh, while the kingdom is growing, another parable he gives them is the parable of the treasure in a field. There, There was a man who came across a treasure buried in a field. Nobody else knew it was there. This treasure is worth everything. So what does he do? He, he, he covers it back up again. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the real, the real value of this field. He sells everything that he has to buy the field, even while the treasure is still hidden and unrealized. It's like he finds a great pearl, and he sees the value of it. It's going to cost a lot at the market, but he realizes it's even valued above the price tag. And he goes and he sells everything in order to buy that one pearl. He's telling his disciples, it's worth it. He's telling his disciples in the midst of unbelief around them, it is worth everything that you will give to it. He is the king. His kingdom is coming and it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. The kingdom is coming. So, he comes to Nazareth, and that's where he's, 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 um, he's, he's rejected, even in his own home at the end of, end of chapter 13. It's hard to tell people who won't see beyond what they already know. But we've got to rush on. We've got to get to chapter 21 to 28. What will you do? Here again, it, it, it comes to a culmination. Okay, Jesus is the king. He's presented. It comes to a culmination. Some believe, but many do not. So the, the, the scope of the kingdom or how the kingdoms come about is going to change from what our earlier expectations were. The kingdom is going to come. Jesus is the king, but it's going to progress differently than we had expected. There's going to be some waiting. There's going to be some continuing by faith involved. And yet, in the midst of that continuing by faith, in the midst of that waiting along the way until the king returns, what will you do with the king and his kingdom? The question still stands before us. It's, it, 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 it's all about who is he really. It's all about can I trust him really. And here, okay, you go to chapter 21. Jesus enters the temple. There's a triumphal entry and the great procession and the crowds are singing. What are they singing? Hosanna to the son of David. That's why we sang that this morning. Because the crowds are saying, Hosanna, save us now, deliver us. Because you're the deliverer. You're the son of David. You're the promised king. Establish your kingdom. Do it now. He comes to the temple. 
to see the spiritual state of his people. And there he finds that they have taken his father's house, which was to be a a house of prayer to all nations, and they have turned it in to a den of thieves. And even as they they have done that, and Jesus, Jesus confronts that in chapter 21, there's an interesting line again that you see that the people, okay, here they, here they are, the crowds are, are saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And yet the, the leaders are indignant of his wonderful works. In verse 15 of chapter 21, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said, don't you see, don't you hear what they're saying? That can't be true of you, and so you should have them stop saying that. And Jesus again quotes the Old Testament scriptures, out of the mouths of infants and babies, you have prepared praise. He says, no, no, this is just what the, what the prophets said was going to happen. Now, there's, there's those who believe, there's those who don't. You have the cursing of the fig tree. There's, there's our tree analogy again. Because there's no fruit on the tree, Jesus curses the tree. There should have been fruit and there was not. And he curses the tree and it withers. There's this lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks. This is in chapter 23. And yet you would not have me. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. You will not see me anymore until you say, like those crowds when I first entered Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is that? You'll not see me again until you look on him whom you pierced. You will not see me again until you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. That's what he's saying. It's, it's all a matter of belief. Who is Jesus and what is our response? And so the disciples raise the question in chapter 24. Well, well, actually, let's look at 24. There's a, good, there's a good lesson here. So Jesus leaves the temple, was going away, and when his disciples came to point out to him all the buildings of the temple. Wow, look at this. We've, we're from Galilee. We've never seen stuff like this before. I was like a country boy, you know, when I visited New York City. Wow! Look at these buildings! How do they get so tall? That's what the disciples are doing. But Jesus redirects their gaze. See how he does that? He says, you see all these, don't you? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left, one not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is all going to perish. This is all going to pass. This is going away, and it's nearer than you think, by the way. Jerusalem's just about to be destroyed when Matthew writes this. And so they ask him. Well, as he sits on the Mount of Olives, looking over Jerusalem, contemplating its grandeur, and you've got a great view of the temple the greatest building in Jerusalem as you sit there on the Mount of Olives. And as they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking over the city, contemplating its grandeur and what Jesus has told them, that it's all going to fall. Not one stone will be left on another. Then they say to him, well, tell us, when will that happen? When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You see, okay, we understand there's a delay. We understand you've been telling us that the Son of Man is going to be rejected. He's going to be crucified. And on the third day, he'll raise from the dead. We've heard that. We haven't really heard it or understood it yet. 
But so when are you coming back? When will don't you have that question? Well, the answer is actually here in chapter 24. But we're not going to talk about it this morning. Suffice to say, he is coming. There is a timetable. He is coming. His return is sure. It is certain. And yet his people need to know this one, two things. Jesus is king. His kingdom is coming. Let me, let me cut all the way to the end. He is rejected. He is crucified. And in that moment when it seems that Rome has won against Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Messiah that everyone expected would cast off Rome's oppression, it looks like Rome has won. And at that moment, the officer of Rome says these words. Truly, he was the Son of God. The executioner who saw him die says at his death, truly he was the Son of God. He really was. That's that same confession of Peter. Who do people say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. Well, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And those words are echoed in the most unexpected places. There's a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, who, who comes and receives, actually with Nicodemus, one of the other Gospels tells us, comes and gets his body and places it in his own tomb. I don't know, does he already know that it's okay? He can lay the body there because he's not going to be there long? I don't know, but he says that he's a believer. He's a follower of Jesus. In the most unexpected places, even at his own death, there are those who believe in him. I hope it's encouraging. I hope it's encouraging that that in the midst of waiting, in the midst of so much unbelief, sometime in the most unexpected places will be those who believe. Even at the worst of times, there will be those who believe. And that leads into then, what are we supposed to do while we wait? Matthew is, is pressing to a particular point. But you don't get Matthew 28 without a fuller setup of what Matthew's whole book is about, that Jesus is the king and his kingdom is coming. Now turn to Matthew 28 and verse 16. Very closing paragraph in the book of Matthew. Now the 11 disciples, Jesus has risen. He's told, he's told those who came to his tomb. He's, he's told them soon after his resurrection, tell my disciples to go before me into Galilee. I'm going to meet them there. Now there are other appearances that happen, but Matthew is rushing to this one. Because this is the one that fits the purpose Matthew wants to get across to those who we've believed in Jesus, but where is he? Where's his kingdom? We're, we're in danger of losing hope. And Matthew is reminding them. Now the eleven disciples then went to Galilee, to the mountaintop that Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. There's a reoccurring theme. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, would you pause and let those words sink in? Would you just pause and let those roll around in your mind a little bit? All authority in heaven and on earth. That covers all of your circumstances. That covers all of my troubles that covers all of the doubts and fears and things that I am not in control of. That covers every morning headline. 
all authority, every evil, wicked thing you see and hear of and know to be there, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. We can trust him. In the midst of it all, we can trust him. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. We focus so much on the Great Commission, and we unpack that, and we know there's a verb there, making dis- make disciples. And that verb involves three partic- participles, which are going and baptizing and teaching. And there's a public declaration aligning yourself with the one whom the world as a whole has rejected. That said, I'm one of his followers. I'll declare it publicly in baptism. And, and teaching them to observe all, making disciples of them that they also would be followers of Jesus in these things that he has told us while we wait. But in all of that emphasis, we miss this. I haven't come yet, but I'm here. I'm here. The one who has all authority in heaven and earth is with you who believe always. The one who has all authority over all of those circumstances which we fear is the one who is here. I, am not, I not only have all authority, but I am with you always. Isn't that exactly what those who doubted need to hear, need to know? need to be reminded of. Isn't it good for us in the midst of so much stuff, in the midst of things that press upon us, for us to hear again and to remember Jesus really is King. All authority. All authority. Always here. If nothing else this morning, what circumstances are you afraid of? What circumstances concern you? And the song says, Be still, my soul. The wind and waves still know the voice of Him who ruled them when He was below. They still know His voice because He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The one who is the king, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the one that I follow. And I don't know where he's leading you. I don't know what the trail looks like. I don't know how rocky the ground. I don't know how unlistening the ears to whom you speak. But I do know this. Jesus has all authority. Jesus is the king. No matter what other foolishness is going on in world leadership around us, Jesus is the king. We can commit it to him. As he was faithful to the earlier prophecies, he will be faithful to all of them. What he has begun, he will finish. And he that began a good work in you, the king, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ when he comes. Let's pray. Father, Father, there are circumstances and situations that press upon us. I don't know what all of them are. I know some of them in the room this morning. I don't know all of them. I don't know the uncertainties that we face. I don't know all of the, all of the doubts that, that crowd in. I don't know 
of the difficulties and the rejections that people have faced. And yet, Father, would you remind us, Lord, that we can go on your mission because it's you who send us. We can go proclaiming the gospel of Jesus because it was the king himself who has commissioned us. And in light of that, nothing else really matters so much. It may be difficult, maybe no one will hear, but it doesn't matter if we please them. Lord, would you help us to please the king who's commissioned us, that in that way we would follow him above any other. Lord, give courage to your people today. By your spirit, help us then to take your gospel to those around us that need it, to tell others that Jesus is the king and his kingdom is coming. They need to believe in him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As our ushers come forward, we're going to, uh, we're just going to change uh, something up a little bit here. There's a chorus.